Yeah, but it was nice. I feel really energized consequently. I feel like I have connection to society again. So, you know. That must be nice. Must well, be but, nice, you, yeah. but you just saw each other yesterday. So, you know, that's good. Yeah, and then walked around really... a fucking desolate, <laughs> like, bird sanctuary with all the trees looking dead. <laughs> Actually, it was nice to go to the beach. Thanks a lot. Thanks, thanks a lot, George. Fucking hell. Do you see, this is the kind of bullshit I have to put up with. It was like, it's one of the nicest fucking walks in Kent. And there was this lovely, like, little glade, which was very colorful with um, all the moss. And there was a little brook. And fucking George is, like, complaining because it, you know, like, uh, because the because it's not fully spring yet and the leaves aren't out on the trees. Well, I'm sorry, I can't fucking end the lockdown for you and make the leaves grow on the trees. But you're not, but you're not really locked down properly in the way that you were then if you could, you know, travel to a different county. Look, I mean, we're breaking the law. So, I mean, we're mm. not locked down in the sense the cops are stopping everyone. They are breaking up major parties and there is nothing to do, nowhere to go, total uncertainty about the future. Mm. Well, no, you'll be, you'll be released on, you're, you're going to be released on the 21st of June. It's good. One last push. You should, now, you should, now you should enjoy the lockdown because it's for a social good. It's just one last push while people get vaccinated and no. then they'll be sound. If you I are here, I Alex, buy that. If you were here, I think I might throw you out the window. Let's get on with it. Let's get on with it. Hello, friends. It's Alex O'Healy. It's Sunday, the 21st of March. You're listening to this as of Tuesday, the 23rd of March. We're back with another three articles. It's been a little while, and I'm here as always with George Hoare and Philip Cunliffe, uh, who are in the UK, uh, separate now. Um, I don't know if you just heard that early bit there. Um, they were together, but but now they're apart and feel much worse for it. So, um, but now we're now back together. So happy. How online. are we doing, guys? We're back together online now. So good, so good, so good. The pain of the pain of separation, um, the joy of reunion um no i mean there's just not there's just not a lot to do at the moment is there well speaking from the british uh perspective so no yeah looking forward to some intellectual discussion on a sunday afternoon yeah what well be you'll better? be you'll, you'll be happy once you know like they reopen the greggs and the pret-a-manger you know all those exciting things that you have to do in the uk because obviously there's no nightclubs or interesting bars to go to dick. um so you know you can enjoy your chain high streets the clubs um, the clubs aren't that great. This is true. Um, but there is something which you've missed out with your fancy Euro trash ways, which is the pub, the foundation yes. of British civilization and civic life. And I know for a fact that even though you pretend to be like whatever the fuck you're supposed to be, um, <laughs> Brazilian, fucking Swiss, Dutch, Irish, whatever the fuck, I know that you like pubs because we drink in pubs when you're here. So you can't. I do. I'll, I'll admit, I'll admit to actually. When in, when in Rome actively um, missing the pub because i mean as much as i miss the boteco here um i also miss the pub because it's a different thing um so actually it's probably... funny that you mentioned prep because when i lived in in china one of the things that i did miss was a really good sandwich and i, I like prep sandwiches you know just for that george my... it should not only be cancelled but probably hung upside down beaten with rubber truncheons then shot and set alight i'm a true anglo what can i say I'm I'm proud of it. Yeah, it is called and Pret a Manger. Only yeah. Remainers fucking good. That's true. <laughs> um, you've exposed yourself, George. Okay, let's get started. This is the three articles for those of you who have joined us recently. First of all, welcome. We're delighted to have you, and we hope we you enjoy what we put 
out. Um, this is uh, three articles where we share each an article, discuss it. Um, it's a way of discussing current affairs um, through this uh, slightly arcane medium of, uh, of each bringing an article, like it's a show and tell. Okay, so today we have three articles, uh, as the name suggests, one on techno-populism, one on the vaccination debacle in the EU, and the last one on sexlessness. Um, which is a sexy topic to be talking about. Okay, so uh, over to George first to introduce the technopopulism one. Yeah, so as a as a man of the people, but also an expert, I thought it would be fitting for me to be introducing the technopopulism article. Um, so this is written by Chris Bickerton. It was in New Statesman at the end of last year. The reason why I've gone for a slightly older article than might normally is that his book um, or the book that he's written with uh, Carlo, so Carlo Infinizzi Acetti, has come out uh, just recently, uh, and that's on technopopulism. And it's... Uh, really brilliant actually i think so yeah just to give a quick summary of the article and bring you guys in the starting point is basically that you have this um <clears throat> potentially paradoxical or confusing phenomenon at the moment where you have a combination and so chris talks about boris johnson in the in the article talking about people's this people's that people's you know people's princess people's parliament people's whatever people's everything at the same time that you have the the dominance or the preeminence of chief medical officers epidemiologists of all stripes in responses to the covid pandemic so you have this strange scenario which has, has been playing out i think over the past year where you have populists maybe anti-expert populists like trump johnson bolsonaro um voted in by those kind of idiot voters who saw them as, as populists um now taking uh, an approach which combines the expertise of populists or uh, uh, appeals to the people with the expertise uh, with uh, with appeals to expertise so yeah um so basically and i won't talk too much longer and bring bring you guys in uh, the key kind of idea is that you can't or the key claim of this article is you, you can't understand the current moment if you accept this political opposition between populism and technocracy um, at face value. Instead, Chris argues it's the logic of democratic politics um, that political strategies include both um, appeals to the people and appeals to to experts in different kind of ways or different balances or different kind of valences. But that is the game we're all playing. So political competition isn't left versus right. It's just different ways of synthesizing appeals to the people with appeals to expertise. So yeah, I think it's very thought. And so that's the subtitle of the book, the, you know, the, it's about the logic of democratic politics. And so this is the, the argument which they, they build in, in the book, and we can maybe get into some of the origins, some of the consequences, but this is the, um, the key claim in the article and the book. Yeah, it's a very good piece. Um, it's very, I mean, I think it's very subtle and it draws attention not only to the interdependence of technocracy and populism today, but also the fact, um, so I mean, you know, they're mutually kind of, not only mutually constitutive and mutually self-reinforcing, um, but that they both arise out of the same phenomenon, which is um, that they are, they both represent the failures of representation and they both grow out of the decay of earlier forms of representative politics. And so populists invoke the people. Um, and in, I mean, I suppose the point is, it's not just um, kind of uh, rhetorical trickery. There is no way to invoke 
um, or appeals to mass politics necessarily kind of uh, have to go expansive, are forced to go in this kind of dramatically exaggerated way because um, there is um, there are no mediating structures that would have traditionally channeled political will through concrete yeah. institutions such as trade unions, um, structured mass parties, the churches in the case of Christian democracy in Europe and the Anglican church and the Tories in the case of the UK. Um, so, um, and they, so this is the, it's, they both grow out of the same logic. And so this is um, the important kind of uh, similarity between the two. Yeah. And of course, an important reference to none other than our old friend, Silvio, uh, Silvio Berlusconi being the embodiment of techno-populism, uh, doing it earlier and better than anyone else. And of course, um, you know, I, we're not going to claim that by any means, like Chris is stealing our ideas or, or, or for that matter, um, you know, that, that uh, well, you know, he's a feature, obviously, of the, the book, uh, The End of the End of History. You should check it out. It's coming out on the 21st of June um, and uh, already no, available 25th, to pre-order. 20, oh, 25th, 25th of June, 25th of June, I'm sorry. Um, 21st of June is the end of lockdown in the UK, which That's we right. are also very excited about. So basically, exactly. June is the best month song. of this year. It's so good. It's a twofer. Um, sorry, Alex. It's a twofer. Yeah. Um, but of course, you know, Chris is a friend, um, an influence also on, on what we've done and, you know, mutual kind of thought body. What do you call it? <laughs> I'm, I'm, uh, mutual thought body. That's mutual thought body. That's lockdown brain right there. Mutual that is. It is. Uh, but anyway, I hope you listeners understand what I'm, what I'm on about. But yes. Um, so Berlusconi, of course, being the early embodiment of this and something that then, you know, Trump comes to embody, that Johnson comes to embody. Um, as well um i just want to make a point yeah, just, One, just to go ahead. no so just to pick up on this point quickly around um berlusconi and and trump so i think trump's an interesting case because you think well where's his expertise where's his expertise coming from it's coming from you know uh taking care of business so elvis presley that was his logo it was tcb with a with a lightning strike through it and that's that's trump basically he has the expertise of deals of getting shit done he knows how to drain swamps mm. and take names or he, he used to before you know obviously the swamp drained <laughs> the him <laughs> yeah <laughs> he, he ended up being drained himself um yeah so it's interesting because macron presents himself in a similar way as the people's problem solver so there is a sort of expertise which is very practical um which both these people draw on but yeah sorry alex you were going to say something i just wanted to throw that well, in there well, no one thing that i thought was new i guess or at least in the way that he's put it really clarified it for me which is the the there's two origins of on the one hand technocracy and the one and on the other side populism which then fused together which is that it's really meritocracy is the sort of deeper current which in a sense creates technocracy because it's the application of um the way that the economy is supposedly run um where you know you get the best people for the job and that then applied to politics where you get the best people in. And so, you know, you, you see this in how elections have been run as, as if they were a um, job application. We're like, yeah, we're going to pick the best person for the job rather than being someone who represents interests. And, that, and then on the other side... You have to submit, you have to submit a cover letter to the electorate and, yeah. um, 
and then that your application will be will be considered. You, you joke, but there's often good cases of this. Like Lula in his 2002 uh, election, and he's not really a techno populist, but in his 2002, uh, in the run up to his 2002 election, you know, the first time he the the PT gained power, he wrote the the infamous uh, letter to the Brazilian people, which of course was not to the Brazilian people, but was to the Brazilian financial class, saying, um, "I'm not going to rock the boat too much." Basically, um, so that was a sort of a cover letter, um, and I think I'm sure there's other examples that I can't think of off the top. Of my head right now. Um, but the on the other hand, of the other side of it, the references of the people. Now that seems to be, I guess, ironic or unexpected in a situation in which the people have been emptied out of politics, you know, the, the void precisely between politics and the people. So how come politicians are referring to the people so much? And it's actually precisely because politics has become atomized, dismediated, and becomes politicians are just kind of free floating. Disintermediated, yes. Um, Well, I took a shortcut, actually, cutting out the mediation, cutting out the middleman, dismediation. That's exactly the problem we're trying to stop. (laughs) You got owned there, Phil. Sorry. Uh, Yeah. Um, But anyway, because politics is so much free floating, it's not organized into these blocks or pillars, as the article discusses in reference to uh, Dutch, Dutch politics, which is organized into these rigid pillars, which don't cross over from one another. Um, and be precisely because of that, re- references to the people are, it's just this empty signifier, which groups people, to, groups these atomized individuals together um, without any kind of concrete material to it. And I think that's interesting because it's maybe runs against what you kind of tend to think about technocracy or about post politics, um, about neoliberal politics, where the people just aren't, don't exist and it becomes a, a closed circle of elites. It's like, actually, they need this reference to the people precisely because the people aren't actually present. Yeah, I mean, I think it's also, I mean, the traditionally the way in which the people um, making the kind of the these uh, empty signifiers, I suppose, of um, of mass democratic politics, the way in which they were made concrete in the past was through class politics of one form or another and the institutional forms that came with that. Um, and now there is no way in which um, there are no kind of uh, there's no capacity to make those claims concrete um, in, say, talking in terms of the interests of the majority, which is the working class. And so now there's appeals to the people. The subtlety, I think, of the piece, and this is worth drawing out, is there, I mean, so everyone's used to knowing, you know, like, know that uh, populist claims are overinflated, dramatic, unsubstantiated, um, they overpromise and underdeliver and all of this stuff. But the point which um, Chris Bickerton makes in this piece, which I think is very important, is that the technocratic, the kind of expertise, the claims based on expertise and technocracy are equally fantastical because they're offered as the right, you know, this is what the experts say, this is the right thing to do, this is what the science says, um, and it's offered as a magical fix, effectively. Um, so just as the same kind of um, the grandiosity and pomposity and the empty rhetoric of the kind of um, stereotypical populist, you also get on the other side the kind of the magical fix, which is given by the peer-reviewed science, whereas the politics involves um, some people winning and some people losing. It involves negotiating and haggling around interests. It involves, um, you know, someone has to take a hit. Um, someone's interests have to um, be prioritized. Um, someone has to interest have to be traded off against each other. And obviously this is lost. This is eclipsed in the um, technocratic politics of expertise, just as much as in the empty sloganeering of the populists. Yeah. yeah. There's so, there's so much to talk about here, particularly if we're talking about the, the, the book, which obviously 
is longer <laughs> than the article. Yeah, and, and we'll, we'll be talking on, on many about other points. We'll be talking about it yeah. in due course um, at some point later in the year. We hope so. Keep an yeah, um, keep an but ear just, out I, for that. I think just to just to kind of not to kind of preempt that discussion too much, but it's just the um, some of the consequences, I guess, that build on that point that you just made, Phil. Um, I think some of the like um, the character of contemporary politics is really well explained by this by this structure so this idea that you have this politics of the whole you can't have certain people winning and certain people losing you can't have patronage relationships or client relationships you can't have the interest of this part against the interest of this part we win we lose you represent me we're against them instead it's the whole of society being appealed to and so this leads to a kind of what um chris and carlo called an increasing conflictuality i.e that every political argument is about everything because you're appealing to the whole of society and that means that your uh, political opponents claims don't really have legitimacy because it's not like you can recognize they're a different part of society and you know we, we'll see who who wins and who loses but instead there's like they've got it entirely wrong because they're trying to portray society portray p- politics um as a as as a complete whole so it's a really i think yeah. an interesting way that it captures and explains that that kind of increasing conflictuality whilst it's completely unmoored and the often the material kind of basis of these political competing projects is is completely obfuscated. That's really interesting because it's not something that I had really thought about. It's a great way to put it, but also in connecting that to, I guess, what are often seen as culture wars where once the other side um, or a small section of, of, of society is excluded as even as traitors. And I mean, you saw this with Brexit, right, where they where uh, the judges were, were plastered on the, on the front pages of tabloids, calling them traitors. And so every, and uh, there's probably many other examples. And, you know, with the U.S. culture wars, obviously each side sees the other one as this uh, illegitimate representative of the people, whereas we are the true people and so on. And the, those are competing populisms, even if one side, at least in the United States, the Republicans are more comfortable with it, whereas the Democrats are kind of in somewhat in denial about their own populism. Um, yeah, but I think that's, playing, but that, yeah. that, but that's been a feature. Game. Yeah, exactly, and, yeah. That, and it's been a feature even of the mo- of the of those who you think are not that populist. You know, Tony Blair held up as uh, the kind of neoliberal technocrat, post political, blah blah blah, was himself playing uh, the populist game already back then. Yeah, people's princess. I mean, he was the one who coined that, and this is a point that Chris makes quite effectively because it's easy to forget. He they go back in the book to study um, all the rhetoric of the era, and he says it's totally larded. The new Blair, the Blairite rhetoric. And the kind of the jargon of new labor rule is totally larded with references to the people. And of course, the reason for that is because they were replacing the people with um, they were replacing the working class with the people. Um, so the yeah. you know um, the idea that there is kind of uh, you don't want to get too stuck up on the idea that uh, expertise and technocracy is on the right and the people because of its kind of slightly uh, dem- more demagogic or demotic appeal is on the left. Um, the people were it was the original neoliberal paradigm for substituting for working class politics on the left yeah i think that's a it's, it's maybe quite a, an obvious point to make um and this isn't the point that you're making but just to to be very clear about that this logic is not a logic of class politics and i think that isn't the logic of of contemporary democratic politics it's not um it's not one of class you know at the moment there needs to be a lot of a lot of work done to to kind of to re to repoliticize class again which obviously not even is, or even just interest i mean even, even just interest yeah material interest 
have people be honest about um, their own interests, who they represent and what they stand for. What and their the class fact, project is. Yeah, but but, but it can even be class. sexual I mean, just, interests or yeah. yeah, exactly institutional interests. I mean, this is something that strikes me consistently in industrial conflict um, around uh, the PMC unions, the archetypal one of obviously being my own union, the University College Union. It's inability to defend its own professional interests of um, the academy as a corporate kind of body, academics as a corporate group, and the kinds of um, just the basic uh, principles and frameworks that should come with defending professional self-interest. And the, articulating that is difficult enough, let alone kind of um, trying to articulate a mass democratic politics of interest. I think I've got, unless you guys have anything else, I've got one final point, which will very nicely segue onto Article 2, um, which is the fact that Chris and Carlo highlight the way in which expertise and even truth itself, um, you know, relies on a sense of political independence, or at least not being dragged into a partisan game. And so precisely the use of, and, you know, if you're in favor of, and I think most people would be in favor in some sense of being informed by expertise, um, but it needs to be politically litigated, I guess, but that, uh, that, that in introducing expertise and having it stand alone or having basically making the experts front your politics ends up politicizing expertise and ends up as a consequence, uh, delegitimizing it and making it much more subject to question. And hence, uh, as you see now, you know, COVID deniers, anti-vaxxers and so on um, being, uh, you know, coming to the forefront in a, in a situation where science has been so politicized that uh, it lacks it, the, the sense of independent source of truth well, that it, that it did previously. Mm -hmm. And to bring just, us onto that. Uh, just, oh, just really go quickly. On, go to on. Sorry, I don't want to don't want to drag it out, but that's exactly killed my flow. But same. go on, it's the same. It's the same point that we made earlier that the science is uniform and and is whole um, and creates a whole picture, so that you can't have different sort of sciences or different um, models serving different interests. Instead, is completely right or completely wrong. It's the science. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so to transition on, uh, Article Two by Wolfgang Strick, introduced by our very own Philip Cunliffe. <laughs> Yeah, so this is a um, this is a um, blog, I suppose. It's Sidecar, which is the blog of the New Left Review, which is a fairly it's a recent innovation this year, I think. Um, and this is a blog called Accelerating Decay by Wolfgang Streeck, the German sociologist who's been on been on our pod before. Um, and he's uh, this was published on the eighteenth of March um, this year. So what's interesting about this is I think, um, or what it puts back, essentially what it puts back on the agenda, back on the table, is the possibility that the European Union um, is heading towards collapse again. So it's something which I suppose um, certainly was on our minds a few years back in the aftermath of the Brexit referendum, in the aftermath of the Greek referendum, and when the European Union seemed to be subject to the unbearable um, pressures of uh, the debt problems that it was confronting in the southern tier of the union. It seemed to weather those. And now Streak suggests that perhaps um, perhaps disintegration is back on the agenda. So what he'd suggest by this is particularly the low rates of vaccination, um, the difficult politics around vaccination and the way in which this is leading to greater mistrust within the union itself. The fact that countries are scrambling amongst themselves in the so-called vaccine bazaar in Brussels to source their own vaccines, most notably and successfully, the Hungarian um, would-be strongman, Viktor Orban, has reached out to China and Russia to secure, um, to secure vaccines because it's impossible to secure enough within the European Union. 
At the same time, um, there is greater political pressure on Germany over the Nord Stream gas pipeline, which was one of um, Angela Merkel, the German Chancellor's big legacy projects, and is causing, because it's a pipeline which is pumping gas from Russia, it's giving, it's putting uh, Germany into a confrontation with the broader Western alliance and Biden's administration of the US in particular. And then finally, um, and perhaps most importantly, is, um, and Streak very, uh, you know, kind of draws it, um, zeroes in on this very well, that there is, we have heard nothing about the Corona Recovery Fund for quite a while. There's no discussion about it in Parliament. Um, the only thing that we, so this was the huge 750 billion Corona Recovery Fund, um, which was supposed to be the EU kind of uh, finally allowing, um, trying to kind of escape the trap of austerity and trying to allow for greater public spending at the European level to support its member states to get through the aftermath of austerity and the dramatic shock of the pandemic and the lockdown. And we haven't heard anything since. So it was announced. Um, and as he says, Brussels should be buzzing with activity. The only thing that we've heard about it is um, that Italy is supposed to be the greatest beneficiary, given that Italy has suffered the most in the union. Italy is supposed to be the greatest beneficiary. Uh, the attempt to dispense it led to the fall of the Conti government, um, its replacement with the another technocratic appointed government under Mario Draghi. And then incredibly, Draghi has turned over the process of uh, distributing these funds in Italy to McKinsey, the consultancy. Um, so again, if there is anything which could illustrate the techno-populist character of politics in the European Union and the way in which it um, evades any meaningful democracy representation um, accountability. It must be the appointed government of Mario Draghi dispensing EU funds through the um, through the office of uh, the consultancy McKinsey. So um, I think, I mean, one thing that that's brought to mind in terms of you know uh, presaging a collapse of the EU or some very serious crisis, more serious than the. Euro crisis at the start of the last decade and um, Brexit and, and the Greek crisis as well, as Phil has already mentioned, um, is that, I mean, I, the way that I, I suspect that lots of governments will not be held to account for their handling um, of the pandemic, their mismanagement. Um, I think in the UK, it won't happen because they have been successful with the vaccines. And that's the last thing that people will remember and will maybe forget and wish to forget about lockdowns and all the rest, not least because lockdowns did have a kind of fairly wide degree of support according to surveys anyway. The US even as well, relatively successful. Um, again, kind of probably unsuccessful, but just because everyone else has failed, it makes US look kind of all right. Um, it's at whatever, 20% or something. But Europe, it will be different. And I think Europe, it seems to be very much linked to um, the European institutions failing to make the system work um, and having this counterexample in the UK, just having left the EU. Um, and so therefore, I think not that politicians will be held to account kind of at the ballot box, because precisely the nature of the EU is to insulate um, European politicians, um, at least at the European level, from that sort of accountability. But I think the the effects will be will be pretty grave, um, and it's and it's maybe in a large degree due to precisely the, the the timing or the order of the things in which which they fuck up badly. Because um, Strake notes that you know Germany was relatively successful in in handling the pandemic um, up until recently, but now it looks terrible in light of the vaccination. So um, I think maybe that it would just the, the sequence in which you fuck things up actually ends up being kind of decisive. Hmm. No, I think I think the point about accountability is uh, 
is a good one just to draw out the this um repeat repeated reference to to mckinsey because this isn't um strike's first uh blog for for sidecar um and in both of them mckinsey get a get a reference and i think it's it's a it is an an interesting trend in um european governance more widely that you have the state contracting out uh, even quite basic functions um things which obviously it should it should be able to do without the help of of consultants um and i think that the first or, or it, this the these often appear and they are in part um an instance of corruption people from the consultancy sphere go into government they give contracts to their to their mates um often very lucrative ones and <laughs> the um outputs are often not great or not just not realized but the money still gets transferred over but i think at the same time there's a there's a, a deeper problem and i think we'll talk about this when we talk with with uh, lee jones shortly about his his analysis of the the failed neoliberal regulatory state but the it's just the the depth of like just repeated and um fuck-ups as you put it alex but just state failure the inability to um either at the domestic level or the uh, transnational level in the eu to to actually solve this the objective like failure the fact that we're still i mean not to bemoan it too much because it's pretty uh old and widely played record but you know still in lockdown at the moment in in britain and yet this is supposed to be a success because we've managed to roll out a vaccination program i mean which is the absolute minimum that we should really have been expecting um from our state if if, the, if it's supposedly able to solve our our problems I would, I would, um, I'd maybe quarrel a bit with what you said, Alex, about the. Um, I don't think so. I mean, I think you're probably right that voters aren't going to um, punish um, incumbent governments for their handling of the pandemic, and I don't think that's necessarily out of irrationality in terms of or kind of short memories. Um, I think partly some of it will just be relief, but I think also because. Um, th- you know, looking around, and I imagine many people have, you know, kind of been looking around at kind of other countries and seeing how they're doing, how they've done. There is very little, um, particularly among comparable countries, you know, say among Western liberal democracies, there are very few clear models as to what a good kind of um, pandemic response would have looked like. And so the picture is mixed everywhere. I, I so don't I think- disagree. Yeah, I, I well, don't disagree only, with that. You know, so I'm only, it's only to say that I think, you know, that is probably why, um, you know, um, voters will think, well, you know, kind of the idea is as if the opposition party in our country could have offered something um, better than the incumbent government, um, given the fact that so many governments have um, mismanaged the pandemic and the lockdown and vaccination, what have you. But it seems to me that's probably the, why voters won't punish. Um, I, 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 don't disagree, I don't disagree, but that's the the point is, is that I'm not e- expecting very much from voters. I mean, because yeah, because sure. as voters as voters, because you still need political leadership to uh, concretize and give form to people's dis, uh, disgruntlements and, and frustrations and anger. Uh, and that precisely, as you say, has been absent because there haven't there hasn't been oppositions which have been pushing at it, other than maybe kind of generally fairly far right opposition to the lockdowns. Yeah, um, the only real opposition to lockdown is um, in kind of lunatic anti-vax. 
exactly. Unfortunately. That, and as you say, lack of comparable countries. I mean, South Korea, you could say, has been, and, and, certain, and certain other Asian states have been more successful, um, but they're probably not kind of present references for, for like European publics, for example. No, so, exactly, right? So it's Europe and America and a bit of Israel and a bit of Australia. I mean, you know, those are the countries that people will kind of automatically compare themselves to within that zone. And so, you know, the relative success of Taiwan and South Korea um, and even some other Asian states in managing in managing Corona, maybe Japan, you know, and and also, again, I mean, it still goes back to something which I've always tried to stress in all our discussions about lockdown and the pandemic. There still seems to be some basic things that are just unknown about um, how this virus works in different contexts, like the fact that Japan, on the one hand, seems to have escaped relatively unscathed despite having such a you know enormous population that would be vulnerable to um, an enormous elderly population in dense living conditions that should be very vulnerable to to this virus um, and then on the other hand apparently India um, has also escaped unscathed for entirely different reasons um, the working hypothesis now seems to be that India's escaped relatively lightly because um, it's the public sanitation and hygiene is so low that Indians have more built up immunity against um, disease and grime in general. So, so that would I mean, that, that would be the opposite of the J- Japanese example where hygiene standards are much higher, you know, people don't shake hands. Oh, okay. That's... Well, no. No, I agree, I agree. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. So it's only to you know, it's only to say that I think um there are you know, the the notion that there are very clear political lessons that voters could draw irrespective of um, you know, the party kind of uh, leadership and so on. It's it's a very it's a very kind of muddled picture. And I yeah. think when the time comes, voters will be so relieved um, that their masters and uh, leaders have let them out again, back to normal life, that they'll probably be willing to move on. But I think, you know, the there will be a long tail of the lockdown and the pandemic, and it will lash about in unexpected and unpredictable ways that yeah. we will um, yet uh, yet see. Yeah, I think there's there's been a really consistent anti-politics of of lockdowns that they're i mean i've made this point a number of times they're they're demobilizing depoliticizing and it it is so it is striking that you have had this massive catastrophic event and it's generated no political opposition like we talked about the you know the the, the marginal kind of anti-vaxxers but you know where's where have been the defenses of civil liberties where where's been you know what's the left's approach in general been it's been a, a kind of technocratic um you know you should just tweak this or do this in a different kind of speed i mean yeah. and maybe why didn't that's, they cancel that's, uh, christmas that was the labor party's demand for the tory government why didn't they cancel christmas the lockdown left well, I mean, yeah, maybe this this reinforces the the techno populist point that it's just different blends of of these of these things, and there's no at present there's no um, easy way to get outside of that of that logic and to defend a, an entirely different um, sort of political claim. But but, yeah. but even the even the what should be easy pickings for the left and specifically for this left for the left that actually exists which would be anti austerity and to say well okay we're under lockdown because you've run out of hosp- ICU beds. Well, that's a problem. I mean, look, I, I don't know exactly the details across different countries and the, the cases have been quite varied and often don't yeah. map onto what you expect um, in terms of where there are beds and where there aren't, whatever. The, the point being is that seems to be a fairly, would be a fairly obvious point at which to push. Um, and even yeah, and the left hasn't done that. 
and they're but they're also complicit in it. So I mean, Britain has very poor, um, you know, has obviously been has uh, the public health service has been gouged in various ways. The mismanagement of the pandemic also means that we actually had fewer emergency wards available over the course of the pandemic and the lockdown. Um, but it's also true in Sweden. You know, so the kind of the pinko, fluffy, social democratic welfare state is also um, the reduction of public health spending there means that per, ca- in per capita terms, it has um, far fewer um, ICU beds yeah. than a comparable states as well. You know, so but there's a, there's, like you yeah. say, the picture is very muddled, but social democratic government um, parties have been complicit in all of this over the last few decades. And sure, therefore, but, but, but I mean, here, I think this is why they don't have a leg to stand on in opposition. Either. But, but the extra parliament, I know, but the extra parliamentary left, if anything, has been an anti-austerity left. I mean, that's the one thing that they have done. And it's what was behind Corbyn and what was behind, what behind other kind of new kind of left populist parties. So, you know, you think that that would have had yeah. some expression. That's but true. we saw, you know, not to say lockdown. Yeah, not to say we, you know, uh, we were so great, but we we did see this coming. We did in the, you know, the initial drafting of the book way back in December 2019, you know, the the, the arguments in there that the centre-right governments are going to are gonna become state capitalists. They're going to have these big investment and expenditure programmes. We obviously didn't see Corona coming in the way that it did. But if that, you know, that, and I think that is right, and the left has remained in a kind of, anti-austerity mode and if you have these big kind of um coronavirus recovery funds or kind of furlough forever or all of these sorts of big expenditure things then it, you've been wrong-footed you know that shows the the limitations of of anti-austerity politics and actually you know the tories were, were quite happy to move to just junk neoliberalism and move on to kind of you know whatever project they're, they're pursuing at the moment and we could talk about the nature of that but um, yeah, I mean, that's that's if, if your framing is anti-austerity, then, you know, if there are big headline um, promises of, of expenditure, then, you know, where you don't have a leg to stand on. So let me let, let's um, wrap this up, the discussion of this sidecar piece by um, Wolfgang Streak with one final point, I suppose, um, and then move on to the next one. And it's to say this is, I suppose, the take home point. Um, for us to think about and um, for you, our listeners, to think about and everybody else, I suppose, is that Streak has put the um, disintegration of the EU back on the agenda. Um, so after it seemed to kind of get over the hump of the debt crisis and seemed to be kind of shake, shaky, but um, nonetheless intact, he suggests that multiple conflicting pressures as a result of um, the pandemic, as a result of um, geopolitical pressures, and it's still its internal economic problems it's lack of democratic accountability, that these strains are going to begin to show and it's going to start buckling again soon. And that's the um, that's the point to take home and think about, I think. Well, if that didn't make you horny enough, over to our resident sex correspondent, Alex Hochuli, that's me. After having observed your behavior this evening and my resultant condition, um, I was wondering if you would like to have sex. With you? Mm-hmm. Here? <laughs> now? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Great! <laughs> I'll be right back. Just relax. 
will begin in a few seconds. Begin what? Having sex, of course. Contact. Contact? I didn't touch you yet. But I, I thought you wanted to make love. Is that what you call this? First sex has been proven to produce higher orders of alpha waves during digitized transference of sexual energies. All right, Oxley, what do you say we just do it the old-fashioned way? Ew, disgusting. You mean... fluid transfer? I mean, bony, the, the wild mambo, the, the hunk of chunker. So uh, my article uh, is a different vibe to these last two, um, but we like to mix it up a little bit and uh, discuss something maybe a little bit more cultural. And today, uh, or this time around, it's my turn to introduce one. This is an article called Everyone is Beautiful and No One is Horny by R.S. Benedict in uh, Blood Knife. So it starts with the observation that blockbuster movies, and especially superhero movies, and in particular, uh, the Marvel franchise, um, that everyone is extremely fit, muscly, toned, and so on, but completely desexualized. No one fucks. Um, in fact, they comment that probably amongst those movies, uh, well, this, I guess, is DC Comics. I don't know this very well. And actually, I've, I'm the wrong person to pick this article because I don't watch any of these movies and I hate them. But um, this just gave me more reason to hate them. So um, that's why I'm introducing it. So, uh, you know, the Joker ends up probably the most sexual um, character of the lot just because of these kind of contradictory tensions that he stores up, whereas uh, the others don't have any kind of seeming sexuality to them. Um, they also, the, the author also notes that Inception, um, you know, is a film about the deep subconscious, but they encounter absolutely no psychosexual eatable nightmare there in the, in the, in the brains of a man, um, but instead a ski patrol. Um, so across uh, cinema and indeed across popular culture, there's very few expressions of genuine sex. And in fact, everything's kind of what I would put in my terms, pornified, but not exactly sexualized. Um, so you have all the actors being extremely well built, just having these ridiculous bodies where, um, you know, you would need effectively a whole team of uh, dietitians and nutritionists and uh, personal trainers and so on to actually build you up to that. So, and if, and if you compare it to actors of the past, of course, it's not as if uh, Hollywood didn't have uh, bulimia, bulimics and anorexics and whatever, but um, the, the degree to which there's investment in creating this perfectly sculpted body um, has reached new levels. But, but um, it's not just about body culture, but about the fact that no one is horny. There's no free songs of sexual encounter um, depicted in these movies. Um, so you have this sort of sanitized hyper fitness, and it's also visible in domestic environments depicted on film. So homes 
uh, are completely ascetic, minimalist, uh, empty husks where people supposedly live, but you know, kitchens don't have any food in them, for example. Um, and this reflects also McMansions as well, which are, uh, the author notes, not actual places to live, but uh, places to flip effectively, you know, kind of make a short-term profit. Um, so in this whole kind of uh, new system of, of desexualized bodies, uh, gym routines are just endless forms of self-improvement. And this is not just depicted in cinema, but um, in, in all our lives. So it's not even, I'm going to get really fit so I can get laid, um, but it seems to be uh, a, some sort of aim in, in itself with, with no other kind of objective beyond it. And in fact, you know, diets themselves, not having any carbs actually re uh, reduce your libido. Uh, one great line uh, from this is that, uh, is there anything more cruelly puritanical than enshrining a sexual idea that leaves a person unable to enjoy sex? Um, and so the, the author ventures a couple of explanations for why this is. They look at it associated with militarism. So this kind of body culture arises quite a lot in the 1980s, then fades away a bit in the 90s and returns with a vengeance after 9-11. But after 9-11, I think it becomes a much more individualized affair because there is no real determined enemy like the Soviet Union anymore. Um, and so it becomes this kind of endless war with nobody, um, or as they put it in reference to like going doing some like booty boot camp uh, that you're fighting the booty enemies, uh, the, <laughs> the, the booty armies of the future. Um, all right. So uh, sex without sex, what do we think? Yeah, I think the... I, I, um, I don't buy the explanation, and um, I think we can get onto that. But I think the um, the diagnosis is is spot on. Um, modern action in superhero films fetishize the body, even as they desexualize it. I mean, there's the reason for that. Not to be too crude about it, is that these are films for for children. There's a, been a pervasive infantilization of of culture, and they show no friction. There's a lot of violence, um, but there's no there's no um, friction at all and i guess the the explanation for that is a, is a bit more complex and a bit trickier but i think part of it is is around as you said the pornification of everyday life only fans well no all fans everybody's an an only fan um now but yeah i think the, the linking it to the um, the spawner sexual as um having obviously talking to mark simpson a couple of weeks ago tell us what um, that is. i think it is sorry Tell us what that is for listeners who haven't it's, listened to that um, episode. Yeah, oh, sorry, it's a, it's a portmanteau. Um, so it's about sport and porn, sporno. Um, spornosexual is somebody, Cristiano Ronaldo is the, the perfect example um, of somebody who's who has a kind of a, a, an unachievable, unattainable um, gym body, but is, is at the same time strangely sexless. And um, if you have seen any of the documentary of him and his... Uh, his his son it's very strange yeah so i mean just very quickly on that because and to uh, illustrate the fact that this is not just something unique to the marvel universe for example but goes across culture which is precisely the the case of sports because if you think back to football players who are not always um who are not always like uh, necessarily sex icons but you know both like Maradona and Cruyff were, and especially Cruyff was more of a was more of a kind of icon. Um, but they're also complicated figures and with personalities and so on. Um, and then you get the the kind of if you look at the, the embodiments of the past, you know, I guess fifteen years of, of the top footballers. It's Messi who literally was lab created in terms of being given growth hormones from an early age. But he doesn't really look like he, he's been built in a lab. Cristiano definitely does, right? And he's kind of you know 
ridiculous abs, um, tall, muscly, can jump and, you know, basically a, a quasi robot, but also quite, quite asexual. And I think we discussed this as well in the episode with, uh, with uh, Mark Simpson and River Page on gay politics. But if you look at the, who's the new generation, and the new generation is Kylian Mbappe, and in particular, Erling Haaland, uh, the, the Borussia Dortmund striker, who is even more of a machine than Cristiano was. He's like, Cristiano was just a prototype. And now you've got Erling Haaland, who's just incredibly tall, incredibly strong, but also super fast, can jump, can kick, can do everything, right? So, um, and at the same time, also, these are not people with personalities. And obviously, that is a step away from sex directly. But I think it, it uh, it's kind of closely related. Yeah, I mean, I would. Um, I think it's a great piece, though it's kind of very uneven and messy. And I think there's quite, you know, just as many hits as there are miss um, misses as there are hits in the piece. Um, and I think George is right that the the um, uh, the Marvel universe. I mean, it's not just that it's kind of infantile adolescent. It's also that kind of. Uh, extension of geek culture you know so it's the guys who are never getting any sex and unsurprisingly it's their imaginative universe that is um filled with kind of the infantile fantasies of all the powers that they um you know that uh, the various superheroes can have but they're not actually getting any action <laughs> so um no. i think she misses she misses so i mean you know i think there is a few dimensions that are missed in the piece you know i'm not quite convinced about the tenuous connections that she draws to geopolitics and i think um you know she says it originates with the famous um, shower scene in starship troopers paul verhoeven's brilliant movie from the late 90s where there is it was shocking you know at the time i mean i still remember it was kind of shocking at the time where there's a mixed shower scene because men and women serve equally in this kind of militaristic um, society of the future in the war against this, um, these alien insects. Um, and everyone is, you know, everyone kind of showers together and there's no um, squeamishness about it because everyone is a citizen and everyone is expected to serve equally in the military, or at least you become a citizen once you've served in the military. Anyway, and I, so I don't, you know, she says that this was kind of the origin of this kind of sexless um, turn. And I'm not sure that's right. Um, because it was, I think it was, um, there was a more interesting kind of political angle to Verhoeven's movie um, and to that scene. And also, I mean, there is sex in Starship Troopers. I mean, that's in fact, it's kind of, a, there is a romantic core to the whole movie, um, which um, kind of powers it along in a way that isn't true of um, the Marvel universe and all those franchise movies. And there was another, so there is another um, aspect of it, which I think is she misses, which is HIV and AIDS another kind of viral pandemic that was very kind of closely linked to shifts in social, in sexual behavior, what was considered sexually responsible, a new kind of form of sexual morality developed. And this was also expressed in culture. So famously with the, um, uh, the James Bond movie, Timothy Dalton movie, when he goes to Afghanistan, which one's that? Um, Live and let die. Is it? I think so. Yeah. Because it's not the living daylights. So um Bond is, a, Bond is an interesting example, though, if you compare yeah. the older ones to Daniel well, Craig. This, but anyway, is, not to derail is, you. Yeah, well, well, this is the one, though. So in famously, the Timothy Dalton movie, you get kind of uh, a slight scene of him with his top off, but there is no sex. There is no kind of sexual um, activity like there was with the Roger Moore and Sean Connery movies before. Um, and so it was very like it was um, it captured that era of um, the new kind of coldness. Um, as a result of the of the um, fear 
the propagation of fear around um, HIV, HIV and AIDS. And so anyway, so she makes some good, you know, she makes some great points. She says, look, there's lots of stuff going on. She says it's um, millennials living with their parents. So it's very difficult to have a sexual partner on. Um, There's growth in, you know, the use in pornography. Everyone's in lockdown. Um, You know, people aren't able to kind of shack up together because of property prices. All of this is going on. And in addition to this, there is also a cultural part of it, which is about being in the gym, but never actually having any sex, about restricting your diet so you lose your libido. And, um, you know, uh, and as well as kind of a culture which is uh, desexualized as well, as is expressed in Hollywood. So, you know, I think, I mean, she's right that these are kind of, um, these are all kind of dynamics that reinforce each other, but they, they are each individual strands themselves. I think the the bond uh, example is something that we can explore a little bit further because it illustrates two points. Um, so I'm glad you you raised it. One is that just in terms of body culture, and it's really striking when you look at films from the 60s and 70s to take up the example of Bond, which is something very mainstream. That those that the bodies that Sean Connery or Roger Moore had were in, totally achievable. You might not have that body, but you know it's it's something achievable with a bit you know just going to the gym and eating healthily. Um, whereas the the body of a Daniel Craig needs serious full time dedication uh, to achieve that, which is something different. And then with regard to sex, you know, Daniel Craig still has sex in the Bond movies, but what has been removed is all the sort of lasciviousness and the flirtation and the hints and the winks, which was always done in a completely exaggerated, slightly farcical way, you know, by, by Connery and especially by Roger Moore. But there was a lot of play, right, of, of, of you know, will he, won't he, will she, won't she, um, all that sort of unexpected and... Um, and spontaneous and kind of risk involved in kind of interpersonal romantic relationship flirtation and so on. And that's something that's also gone, I think, from... Uh, so it from was a bit Bond more than that. I mean, it was a bit more than that. The Sean Connery in particular, there was, it was... And Roger Moore, aggressive. I mean, it was, you know, there was outright sexual aggression. Yeah. Um, you know, which has been kind of satirized since. Um, and so, I mean, that's kind of um, risk of another... Yeah. But it, I mean, I suppose, you know, it's risk of another kind. And certainly that has been um, that idea of um, of uh, sexual forwardness, I suppose, if not outright aggression, which was the phenomenon of the Bond movies. Um, that is completely, yeah, that is completely gone, um, not least in the kind of the Hollywood version. And this is, she doesn't mention this, but I suppose this is the flip side, right? And it's also because, um, you know, what can they show on screen when you can get the most, you know, the weirdest, most depraved, most extreme porn pumped directly into your computer screen, what can movies do that would um, that would uh, kind of contrast with that? They can't do anything. They could show you kind of emotion and friction and tension and flirtation, like you say, Alex. Um, but traditionally, they would show they would titillate you with um, with glimpses of sex and sexuality and they can't do, there's no point doing that anymore Mm. because like I say, it's, it's available kind of just on tap, whatever you want is available on tap from the internet. Sure. But you can have, I mean, just to say quickly, you can have something that's really hot and sexy, which just shows no skin whatsoever because you, you know what's going on, but where there's this passion depicted and so on. Huh? I think we have to say our favorite sex scenes now. No, I can't. Well, I, actually, what all this made me think of was the scene from Demolition Man where um, Sylvester Stallone is in this future, uh, well, in, the, in this sort of um, future sci-fi scenario where um, he, this woman proposes him with sex and goes, let's have sex. And he's obviously taken aback going like, what? We've just kind of met. And what, what sex transpires to be is just wearing a 3D um, or um, virtual reality headset and sitting across from a person and having sex. Um, that's where we're headed, kids. Watch out. 
keep fucking well that's yeah that's where we are maybe but the um just a couple a couple of points one on the unachievability of the spornosexual uh body the it makes me think of um rob McElhenney in it's always sunny in philadelphia his um attempts to to kind of i guess sort of to satirize this so his character um for one season he just gets really fat for one season he then just gets really buff and he he kind of shows on his i think it's on his instagram or online somewhere like what it took for him to achieve this and it's like dieting like a, a whole load of experts um and because he, he, he initially says well you you too if, if you just had a bit of discipline could have a have a body like this but of course um that's you know that's not possible there's there's a there's a it's kind of a i think the point he's trying to make is there's a weird exaggeration like who could possibly need to have that sort of a physique it's it's purely to be looked at to be objectified rather than to be to be used or it goes beyond any point of usability um and the second point is just on to go back to superhero films um if either of you have seen the boys it's an amazon tv it's an amazon tv um series and it's quite interesting because they're the um not to give anything away and there's the, you know have, do watch it i think it is it is good um th- their sex is is present in the superhero universe but it's um essentially sexual assault and you the superheroes using their immense power um for for kind of nefarious ends and that is obviously something which is completely verboten in the marvel universe I wanted to make um, another one kind of observation and it's a statistic, which actually I sent to you guys yesterday. Um, it's kind of been doing the rounds on, on Twitter, it seems, but that people, at least in the United States, though I suspect this applies in some form to Britain, um, and I don't know uh, to where else, but that people are less sexually active. Uh, that uh, so one one statistic is that male virgins uh, between the ages of eighteen and thirty have increased from eight percent of the population in two thousand eight to or not of, of the whole population but uh, amongst males eighteen to thirty those who are virgins have increased from eight percent in two thousand eight to twenty seven percent in twenty eighteen so significant uh, nineteen nineteen percentage lockdown. point and that's before the lockdown nineteen percentage point increase uh, over a decade and then also um, it's a, people even married. Uh, people are having less sex or have haven't uh, attest to not having had sex in the past year. Um, but, but especially amongst men who have never married uh, the, those claiming that they haven't had sex in the past year has increased from 12% in 2008 to 22% in 2016. So again, like a, a 10 percentage point increase. So there is actually evidence that people are having sex less. Yeah. I mean, but there has been for a while and it's uh, as Anton Anton Yeager said, "Japan showed the way, right?" Yeah. So, um, what's the what's the name of those guys who um, coop themselves up in their room and play computer games if, all day and don't have just sex? withdrawn from society? Yeah, there's yeah, a I Japanese. Name I'm going to look it up. Keep talking. So, but he said, like, you know, this is basically um, this basically was Japan over the '90s. This uh, that was the the incel culture that develops um, around a society in which is kind of uh, collapsed in on itself, is propped up by quantitative easing through the central bank. That's so you get no economic kind of economic stagnation, political stagnation. So quantitative um, easing is to blame for all of this. Yeah, well, it saying. begins in 2008, right? So this is on the graph that Alex mentioned very strikingly. It begins long before the pandemic, long before lockdown. Um, and it begins in 2008. So, um, you know, I imagine maybe uh, people kind of uh, not being able to move out, people living with their parents, um, people not finding jobs after university, 
um, and general kind of economic stagnation, wage stagnation, probably has something to do with it. Yeah. In addition Hikikomori. to the general, Hikikomori is the name. Hikikomori, Japanese incels, um, Japanese incel culture, the product of quantitative easing, according to Anton Jaeger anyway. And it begins in 2008, man. So, I mean, you know, there seems to be some connection. Yeah, it, it would be too vulgar, I think, to read it off directly from the, the kind of economic crisis. But uh, but there does seem to be something there. I, I agree. Um, there's I mean, it's, one... yeah, it's, it's, it's the context, of course, for all of these these presentations of, uh, I, I don't know how exactly you'd put it, but it is a, it is a hyper um, fetishized films about bodies that aren't really about bodies, that aren't about sex um you know that that fits fits in quite well because it it's it's raises this problem obliquely but doesn't doesn't kind of show any solutions to it um but yeah i think i i, I can't remember where i heard or saw the the scenario the the statistic about the proportion of japanese young men who who never have sex and it's it's quite high it's higher than it than you would hope it would be. Well, it's it's children of men, society without a future, right? Um, yeah, there's exactly. there's one last there's one last point um, about specifically the contrast between sexualization and pornification, and I think there have been feminists who've said that you know we live in an overly sexualized society, or that young girls are sexualized from too young an age, which actually I, I agree with. But I think what is happening here is more pornification than sexualization, and. Um, precisely in the terms that we've discussed and in the way that the article makes clear in relation to the lack of sex in, in films, despite the fact that people might have these ridiculously toned bodies or whatever. Um, and it's like you've got, you've got this sort of, uh, you know, an off, the offline world is a world of, you know, spontaneity, but of risk, of the unexpected, and, and where there's no real exit. So if you get yourself into a situation, um, there's no, you can't just log off, you know, you're, you're trapped into this sort of situation, you've got to turn someone down, or in the worst case, it can be an abusive situation, which obviously is lamentable. But the point is, is that real interactions are complicated and messy. Um, and there's no way of completely sanitizing that. Whereas in the online world, it seems super sexualized. And in fact, what it is, is hyper pornographied. Um, and it's because there on the online world, uh, sex is safe. First of all, um, you can always log off, um, but it's also completely commodified because on, you're either consuming images or maybe you're producing them on your OnlyFans. And that kind of fits in with a sort of neoliberal imperative to always be productive. So, you know, you're earning money, you're earning passive income or whatever it is um, through these uh, through, you know, OnlyFans. And in that regard, I guess the, the correct analogy is that it's a sexual shopping mall in the sense both of the fact that everything's available to you. It's this whole world of consumption where all sorts of uh, pseudo sex are available is available online, but it's also a space which is completely sanitized with no uh, real spontaneity or risk of any sort really involved. I think there's there's another there's a kind of flip side to that. At the same time that you have commodification, you have this hyper grooming or cleaning there's i think there, there is something here and i'm not going to get this right because it's just occurred to me um but there is a sort of fear of the abject so a fear of the parts of the body that are really filthy and and dirty and those are completely obviously airbrushed out in all representations um of the body particularly in 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 you know sexual context or in the superhero films that we've been been talking about and I don't, I don't want to say that's all due to neoliberalism, but it seems like there is um, an interdiction against various sorts of um, kind of bodily by-processes. I don't know exactly well, how to put it. Well, it's not. It's due to quantitative easing, as we've said. 
horizontally said. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the quantitative easing is just means having less sex. Um, so the, the quantities have been eased off. There's just that's less. How, that's that's how you pay. You have to pay the the iron price for the for the <laughs> money. No, that doesn't work. All right, should we leave this here before we start uh, babbling even more? Um, this has been three articles. Uh, this has been Alpha Bunga Bunga. Thank you, patrons, for joining us. Uh, we hope you've enjoyed it. Let us know what you think. And of course, uh, if you're new to us, thank you again for for joining. Welcome, and to let you know, we always try to, once every month or once every two months or so, we try to address all the comments, questions, and criticisms we've received in a special uh, Alpha Bonus bonus episode. Um, so do know that your question, comment, or scathing criticism will be answered in due course. All right, that's it from us for now. Catch you later. Keep fucking. Bye-bye. Mm-hmm.